Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today, I'm joined by Elias Torres. He is the founder and CTO of Drift. His story is incredibly inspiring. Drift is the third company he has run with his co-founder, David Cancel, and under their leadership, Drift went from zero to eight figures in revenue in under two years. Elias actually emigrated to America from Nicaragua when he was 17 years old and worked at McDonald's whilst finishing high school and learning English. It's incredible what he's been able to achieve since then. In this episode, we discuss the steps he took to consistently grow revenue at Drift year on year and build a company bringing in millions and millions of revenue, how to hire great engineers, the value of working across every department in the business. Yes, he still answers customer support queries and so much more. It's an essential episode for anyone who wants to develop their resilience and leadership skills. Enjoy. Hey everyone, I'm so excited for our interview today. We have with us a really, really, really interesting founder, someone who's actually built a number of companies, so a lot of stuff that we can learn from. He sold companies, he's got a fast-growing company right now, it's a product that you've absolutely definitely heard of, but even on a more personal level, the reason why I'm really, really excited to interview this guest is because he has a background which is not typical of a lot of the Silicon Valley folks that we've brought on the show before. For. And this is, of course, Elias of Drift, CEO, co-founder, oh, rather CTO and co-founder of Drift. Elias, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me uh, and thank you for the promotion. Uh, definitely, I'm glad to be the CEO now. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, David Cancel is my partner. It's excited to be here and share a little bit about of our journey really together because David and I have been working now uh, over 10 years together. Uh, wow! This is the fourth company, so we're like those kind of founders that, you know, stick together through through everything, and have built a great relationship with both Latinx founders. So maybe that helped that we share the same culture and the same upbringing. Uh, but it's been it's been incredible. So we um, we, we have enjoyed this, and and we we have a lot more to go, right? Because we want to wow. drift into a ten billion dollar company. So we we figure we still have another ten years to work together. That's incredible. So you have goals of being a, a decacorn, unicorn, ten horn unicorn. Well, that's really cool. Okay, we're going to come back onto that. But you know, the power of community and the power of networks. You say that you've you know founded your fourth company now with David. It's pretty cool actually because the reason that this interview came about is also through you know the power of connections, the power of networks. I put a call out to the product hunt community and on Twitter. Hey folks, you know, who should we have on the show? And your teammate Lacey reached out and was like, oh my God, I would love to have Elias on the show. A bunch of different people liked that tweet, commented on it saying, yes, we want to hear from more makers who have overcome the obstacles that we have so we can learn from them. So I'm really glad that we could finally make this happen. I definitely want to hear more about Drift just as a start. So what is Drift? What do you do there? (laughs) So Drift is the new way businesses are going to buy from businesses, right? It's like every startup founder is a maker and is trying to build this product and they want to get it out there in front of customers, right? And so there's just too much friction between what you've built and getting it into the hands of the people that need to use it, right? 
And so we want to transform that because it's just too complicated. Traditionally, what, what has existed out there is that you put up a website, you put up a form, and then you expect people to fill this form. And guess what? People don't want to fill out forms. And so we, yeah, we're we're in an age now where people want to use their phone and people want to use instant messaging, message, iMessage, WhatsApp, Telegram, whatever, right? And they're like, okay, I want an answer now. I want to know if I can buy your product. I want to know if I can trust you with my business, right? And so that's what Drift does is that we want to facilitate the buying process. That's incredible. That is so cool. And I guess before I sort of like dive into a bit deeper how you and David sort of like built the solution to this problem, I'd love to know, you you mentioned how you've spent 10 years working together. One of the biggest challenges that people in our community face is finding a co-founder, finding a business partner, finding someone that shares the vision and can complement their skills. And I guess having you on the show, given this incredible relationship you and David have, well, I have a really good opportunity to ask you to describe your relationship and describe like the qualities that you, you know, both have so that people who are listening can hopefully try to replicate that in their own life. <laughs> yes, uh, I'll try to distill some of that. I think that um, it, it's funny because I was watching um, Inside the Mind of Bill Gates. It's a documentary on Netflix right now. Uh, and the second episode talks a little bit about the relationship that, that Bill had with Paul. And and really, is after watching this, I just realized it's, it's, I need to meet Bill before something happens to him. You know, he's, <laughs> he's incredible, right? And, and so I told I, – I texted David and I said, David, you should um, – Watch that, right? Because I'm a little bit more on the romantic and the I'm the extrovert. I'm the one with the more personal connection. And David is an introvert, believe it or not. He's very well-spoken, out, out uh, external to the company a lot, external facing. Uh, but he's more introverted. He wants more time to himself and prefers like, you know, text messaging and things like that. One of the ways that I, we met was that I put, I stuck my neck out there. I was at IBM for 10 years. And I wanted to go into the startup world, like all of you founders. I was, you know, 2006, I was like watching TechCrunch and articles. and was like, oh, you know, they raised millions of dollars. They sold. And so I, I, I just fell in love with that. I don't know. Just It was as shallow as it could be. We did that. And I started working part-time for startups. And that was really, uh, I got out there a little bit into that space. But I think I like what you said about being a maker, right? I really, really encourage you, you have to make something, right? Just networking out there uh, for the sake of networking, it's not going to get you places. What I did was I started working for startups nights and weekends, and one of them introduced me to David, and the rest is history. That's incredible. And so you met David. Of course, at the time that you met him, you may not have necessarily had the idea in mind of starting a business together, or did you already know in that moment? He had already started one. Well, when I met him, he was leaving uh, Compete.com. He had just finished that, sold it to WPP, and he was about to start something. So I missed the start of that one. But a year later, I reached out to him after that connection. And I said to him, uh, I, was, I was interested to be more connected to the community and to the, into the network. And he said, come and work with me. And that's how I joined him on the first company. That day I quit IBM after 10 years. Wow. I, just, I felt comfortable. I felt at ease. Uh, I, 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 you know, my partner, we have 
three kids, babies, and only <laughs> one salary. I was nervous and I just took the plunge. I just trusted him immediately. And uh, two weeks later, the market crashed in 2008. So that was fantastic. Gosh, that is crazy. But you survived. <laughs> We did definitely got through that, you know. I uh, we we did that, and so about a year later, the company fails. It's a lookery, and then David says that's when we had the first like serious discussion, and he's like, he liked what he saw of how hard I worked and how I was customer focused and and be able to talk to customers, help with the sales, and also help with the building of the product. And you have to deliver. You have to get shit done. You know. And so he he felt compelled to ask me, do you want to start a company with me? And I had no job. <laughs> we had just shut down one company. And so I said, of course, now it was the time to really become a founder for the first time. And that was nerve wracking because he knew a lot more than I did. And that was another another good thing. If you look at Bill Gates and Paul Allen, Paul was older than Bill. Bill was very young, very young, eighth grader. And I think Paul was in high school. And so... Um, you know, that experience drew Bill to, to Paul. And, and that's something I like from David because he built many more companies from a startup. He's always been in startups. And so being my first time, you know, I just don't recommend, you know, combining two co-founders that never done it. I see that a lot. And you got to get someone that has more experience than you because that will set the tone that you have to have the humility to not worry about, is it 50-50? You know, somebody has to be able to make the decisions, right? And you have to be able to disagree and commit. And so that's part of our dynamic, right? It's like, I've been, you know, I always, had, you know, would listen to him because he had more experience. And now 10 years plus, th the relationship is more balanced, right? Because he, he has seen me work. I have seen him work. I see him, how he makes decisions, how he's a visionary. And it allows me to know what he's going to say or understand what he what he's thinking, Right. And so I trust him. He trusts me, and we can be separate ways, make the decisions depend decisions independently, and we without causing too much friction. Right. I love that. I think it takes a certain level of courage and confidence, as well as humility, as a maker, to make the decision that the person I will collaborate with is going to be someone more experienced than me who can bring that decision-making power, leverage from their expertise and experience to the table so that I can double down on my skill set or so I can double down on you know my passion or whatever it is that I'm bringing to the table. Because I'll think exactly as you said, I have seen so many makers get caught up on things which ultimately are slowing down progress of making and like getting a product out there. Like, oh, should it be 55, 45? Oh, who should have this title? And I think that is what happens when two relatively inexperienced leaders come to a table and almost get too caught up in the things that don't matter. So I, I really, really love that you've shared that advice because I, I haven't heard anyone say that on the show so far. So Elias, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to start with a sort of like headline snapshot of the incredible stats that you've been able to achieve with your company Drift so far. And then I kind of want to like rewind to the beginning of your career. So let me just start with what I've been able to gather, uh, you know, from Crunchbase. So Drift has raised over $100 million in funding. Is that right? $107 million as of now? I think so. Okay. Wow. Incredible. So you've been obviously around for the last five years since 2014. How many employees are you at now? I think it's, you know, we had 
13 people start today. So we might have crossed 300. Wow. Okay. Incredible. Over 300 employees. You are living the life that many makers are dreaming of being in one day in the next few years. But let's rewind a bit. So when you were in high school, is this a life that you thought you would be living? Oh, no, no way. When I was in high school, well, there's two high school experiences. I was a high school in Nicaragua, and then I was also in the U.S., right? In Nicaragua, I I didn't even know how I was going to go to the university or whether I would ever get a job. I mean, it was really tough. As a communist country, very poor, not a lot of opportunities. Over there, it's really more about your last name and which family you grew up with. You can't just start from nothing. It's it's so, it's so much more rare of a thing, of an event. Uh, then my high school here, I was an immigrant just trying to help my mother and my siblings, you know, survive, right? Just establish ourselves and uh, really needed to, it was just more like very basic, right? Go from cleaning offices to working at a McDonald's to working at a grocery store to then I got an internship to work at a bank, right? Uh, as a teller, customer service. And so never would have pictured entrepreneurship at this scale in the slightest. I just know it's impossible. I didn't even know that MIT or Harvard existed oh, wow. when I came to this country. How did that all come to be? So you come to America in your teens, you're working on top of studying. Then what happens? Like, how do you discover these, these career paths? And then most of all, how did you find the discipline and determination to pursue them? Uh, it's people, really. People have helped me, right? I think that that's. Um, I look back and really, uh, you know, in high school, I had a teacher that asked me to join the math club, and that exposed me to other kids in the network that were uh, applying to things. I, I heard the word Dartmouth and Princeton at that time, you know, but I didn't know what that was. But and I stayed at USF in Tampa because I needed to be close to my mother. I lived with my mother through college, right? Uh, there was a, a man called Robert H. Boyd Jr., who is uh, an African-American man that runs a program, ran a program, he, he passed away, that is called Inroads, that was for minorities to give them access to internships. And, and so that's how I took the bank internship. And then I was moved into, uh, through that, all those companies, I heard about IBM. And, and one of my friends in there, uh, Lewis Moss, and he, I said, I want an internship at IBM. And he goes, oh, apply it in my team over here. And, and, and so sl- that's how I slowly snuck in my way into IBM. In fact, I didn't get hired at IBM as an intern, but the one that they chose did not pass the drug test. IBM had a drug test required and, and, and I did not pass it. And so... They asked me, they called me back a month later and they said, would you like the job? And, and, and I got the job. And so I was like, and that's my beginning of the career into tech because then they moved. I got a final recruiter, Bill Lawrence. He interviewed me in Florida and says, you got to come to White Plains, New York to an interview. And that got me into the core of IBM and an innovation hub and a team that was incredible where that taught me a lot about, you know, seeing the future of tech. Right. Uh, and it was an amazing team that that really, you know, seeded a lot of great thinking for me and, and just to see the possibilities, right? Wow, that's incredible. So let's talk a bit about your journey into coding then. When did you discover that you were really good at it and could make a career out of it? That one goes a little bit way back. I, I did uh, visit L.A. 
uh, escaping the war. In, in Nicaragua, like, there was a war, a uh, civil war happening. And so the government would just literally, like, a truck would go by. And, like, if you look big enough, tall enough to carry a weapon, they just throw you in a truck and send you into the mountains. That was the draft, you know. And so my mother, uh, my father were, were separated. And so he lived in L.A. And my mother said to, to my, I asked my dad, finally, I, I had never met him. And he says, can you take care of him? Because I don't want him to go to, to war, right? So I did. And then somebody sold him like a used computer in like the 80s. And that's when I started playing with the, with an IBM computer using Lotus 1, 2, 3 and, and, and WordPerfect. And that's the beginning of me exploring computers, right? Little by little, not necessarily programming, but those were my days uh, of like, what is this? You know, and now it's incredible that I'm here and I'm I'm connected to um, Mitch Kapoor, Kapoor, right? Who was the uh, inventor of Lotus Software and Lotus One Two Three, and I'm partnering with him to help with social injustice and and, and be able to help minorities, right? Have access to opportunities and. And it's just like the, the, this, this, how everything just is going full circle for me is it's just mind blowing that I could be in that garage using Lotus One Two Three, and and that was the beginning of me learning how to play with computers and just were fascinated by them. I'm not necessarily like best programmer in the world type of person, but I just learn fast and I love to make things and just make them happen, make the make it happen quickly, and then try and learn from the mistakes. Wow. I feel like you're very humble though, because you are running a company with 300 plus employees at CTO and previously been a VP of engineering of a company that was the top spot, but yes. Okay. I mean, there's amazing programmers. Like, see, when you come from, from nothing and you're like, you think you're like, I, I do think I'm like, I'm good at some things. And then you meet somebody else that is so much better then you just keep getting smacked. Right. And it's like, oh my God. There's better programmers that build amazing things like Mitch, like people at Google, like people at Facebook and stuff like that. Uh, here, my focus is you want to combine the right skill sets with the right needs. If I, can, if I can deliver the needs of my customer, it doesn't matter if I'm not the best programmer in the world. Who cares, right? That's not the competition that I'm playing, right? I'm playing the competition to help show America that immigrants can build a great company a $10 billion company. Yes, I love that. So what is it like to be the CTO of a $10 billion company? I would love for you to sort of like tell us a bit about what the things are within the company that you're responsible for. And once you've told us a bit more about, you know, what a typical day looks like, I'd like to talk a bit more about how you went about building your engineering team. And the reason why I think that's really important is just because I know there are so many people out there that struggle with this. And I'd be really curious to hear how perhaps your own life journey and all the things that you have overcome have maybe played a role in like the values that you look for when it comes to engineering. But yeah, first, let's just start with what's it like to be the CTO of Drift and then hear a bit more about building teams. I'm not the typical CTO because... Bill Gates was like super nerdy, like just wanted to read books and, and write code all day long. I'm an extrovert. I'm a really a social individual, right? It's, it's so I get to do things that are not common for, for CTOs. Like I do a lot of recruiting. I spend a lot of time recruiting and hiring for the whole company across the, the entire, all departments. I 
I do a lot, I spend a lot of time, um, my first job at IBM, I was in customer support. So I would help people connect to the internet. So I, I have a, a bent on, I love spending, we have an hour, I do an hour a month in support still. And we also spend a lot of time with customer success. Like, you know, if a customer wants to meet, wants something, they need something, they have an idea or they have a problem they're upset or they have a major breakage or an outage, um, they're going to bring me in there and I'm going to go talk to them and, and, and really be the face of, of the company to our customer. I will also spend time in sales and I do a lot of, a lot of selling. And like, for example, we, um, we just launched this new product, Drift Automation, which is true artificial intelligence that will have conversations autonomously learned from the conversations that humans had with humans. Wow. So I had to be the first one explaining this to customers when we were, you know, initially rolling out to the market privately before we announced it. And so I had to go and explain it and, and kind of like really have see if customers were going to, we're going to pay for it and, and get the value out of there early to prove to our sales organization that this was ready for the market. Right. It's, that's kind of like my days, right? Hey, this is Abadesi, and I want to tell you about a new tech news podcast from Recode called Reset. It's hosted by Ariel Duem Ross, former science reporter for The Verge and the first climate change correspondent on American Nightly TV News for Vice News Tonight. Every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, Ariel will explore the unexpected ways technology impacts our everyday lives and how tech is fundamentally changing our humanity. From authors using artificial intelligence to write novels, to biohackers altering their own DNA, and hate groups using cryptocurrency to fund terrorism. These days, every story is a new story, and Reset is going to show you why. The first episode of Reset is available now. Subscribe to Reset for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. That's incredible. So what I love about everything that you've shared is how closely connected you still remain to all parts of the businesses. But I mean, like really in the trenches, like I love that you're there with support, seeing what your customers are are talking about so that you can feed that back into your engineering team. I think that's incredible. I also love the fact that you, you know, put yourself in those sales conversations so that you can pitch the product and you can have the conversations with the users as well. I find that for some reason, I was talking to David, one of the co-founders of Basecamp about this as well, that there are still a lot of tech teams which seem siloed for some reason. And I don't know why that's the case, but it's like really refreshing to hear that you're not that at all. So now let's talk about how you actually recruit for engineers at Drift. What are some of the qualities or values that you look for? And also, if you'd be happy to share, tell us a bit about what that recruitment process looks like. So the recruiting process is really about, it has to be personal and it has to be about conversations, right? It, it, it's really not a, a disconnected process. It's not like, oh, we pull out, a, we post a job on our website, people fill it out, and then we interview them, and then we decide who do we, who do we want. Engineers are the most sought-out profession in the world. So you're never going to hire someone that applies. It's just, it's just, those are not, you should not be spending your time there, right? You have to go and find the people you want, and you have to go meet them where they are because they have that luxury. 
And so I have to go out there and I'll, I'll meet, you know, with my recruiting team. They're like, Elias, you're having coffee. They're close by your house or no, you're going to have to drive over there where their job is and meet them. And so like, I'll do all those things because that shows people you, you care and you want them as opposed to like, you know, come here, come here. So usually it's like, you know, I got to meet them and we have to connect. I'm, I'm extrovert. I'm, I'm, I'm aggressive. I'm fast. I'm impatient. I'm direct. Right. And so sometimes some engineers don't like that. And you know what? And that happens to be that I tend to attract more extroverted engineers in a very, you know, advantageous way, because guess what? Our engineers love talking to customers because we, we tend, we tend to, to, to hire for that profile. But, you know, as you grow, as I've done in my past companies, like you need to balance it out. You can have people that are great with customers talking in, you know, out there. And then you have other ones that are more thoughtful or introverted. They're more methodical about how they go about solving problems. So you want diversity of thinking in the team and you can't have this, especially as the company gets bigger, you don't need that, that like, you know, go fast, break things type of individuals forever. Right. You want to deliver higher quality. You want to hire they're going to listen more to the customer. And so you start mixing the group of people that you have. And we do that by using personality tests. Everybody that gets hired at Drift has personality tests because we really think about the composition of the company. No, that's incredible. Personality tests, that's so cool. Like Myers-Briggs or? Uh, we use a, a company called Predictive Index. You know, that's important. That's a question you asked that is a principle here. Like, of, did you design one? And it's like, we, that's not our expertise, right? So, so to claim that we could do that would be crazy. Instead, go to a company, buy, buy software from companies because they're better at it than yourselves and don't try to invent everything uh, in-house. Gosh, that's such good advice. Don't try to invent everything in-house. I see so many companies do this where I, I don't know where the motivation comes from. Maybe it's frugality, maybe it's a bit of arrogance, but uh, people often like see a solution out there and go, oh, we'll just do that. Um, so yeah, I love that you're investing in in people that truly spend all their time doing that to, to help. I think that's incredible. I think one of the things that I've really gathered from spending time on social media and like looking at the people that work at Drift and hearing what people say about Drift is that most likely because of your experience, you've really been able to bake diversity and inclusion into the core of your culture from day one. Is that something that you had to actively think about, that you were intentional about, or do you feel that it was something that actually came quite easily to you because of all these incredible life experiences that you've been through? Actually, it doesn't come easy. We thought about it from the beginning, before Drift, we were already making a lot of progress towards that. But it's uh, not not something that comes natural to anybody because you're under so much stress trying to start a company and put it into the right path that it's hard to be perfect in every metric, right? And so you don't want to do that. And, and that's also something that in my personal journey, I, I hadn't realized how big of a problem it was because I just been heads down making, and I was fortunate that people and mentors, mostly people of color, have helped me. Right? The biggest breaks in my life has been because of people of color, and and I just wasn't realizing that. And and now I'm getting closer to a to a position where where I can be more influential and 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 have more resources to help others. And so it's something that has been happening in the past two years, 
And I'm not now I'm learning how hard it is, especially when a company it's crossed, you know, 150, 200, right? To bring diversity into your company, depending on the region, depending on in tech, right, in the industry, it takes work throughout the entire process, right, of building a company. And very few people know how to do this in the world, at least in, in the United States, right? Uh, places that are more diverse by nature, it, it might come, you know, to them. But we here have to really transform society to think different, right? To, to be aware of the differences between uh, different uh, et- ethnicity, identities, gender, and uh, social class, you know, languages and so forth, right? And so I think that that's something that we're going through. And it's not just about attracting them, finding them. Most of people of color, for example, which is come my, my focus, right, as, as a Latinx individual, is really that most of us are, are kind of like invisible to the rest of the world, right? And so to find them is very difficult. And always people are like, no, I can't find anybody. No one exists. We're invisible, but we're there. And so we have to find them and we have to help them and we have to interview different. We have to onboard. We have to make decisions different. We have to train because we didn't have the same upbringing, you know, that, that everyone else had. And so there's, there's so many things that we have to be training and learning that I'm even learning myself. I just kept going at it to get to this point, but I never realized how unfair it was. Right. Uh, so I'm not here to complain. I'm, I'm happy. But now I want to help others, right? And and now I understand that it's not as simple as just, oh, let me just hire them. Because we might not perform the same way because we don't have the same background, the same education. My first time I went to the dentist in the U.S. was after two years after being at IBM. People don't even realize I had like so many cavities, right? Because I couldn't afford them. I went once during college and I couldn't pay for it, right? And so that's different to people that always had that. If you see the documentary on Bill Gates, his family was well off. You know, his mother was on boards of all these companies in Seattle. His father was a great lawyer. Their families would rent a nice camp for the summer and they have activities. You watch those kids' videos, that looks nothing like my background, right? And so it's like there's a lot to work here. It's difficult. It's not even easy for me to keep up with both building the company and trying to transform and put the infrastructure in place for our company to be that. But that is our goal. I want Drift to be the new face of corporate America, right? I want people to look at it, but we're making mistakes. We're not hiring enough people. It's not diverse enough. And sometimes, you know, people people judge that, but I think they're judging it too early, but we'll keep going and we'll be strong and we're going to make this a, a great company. Oh, I love that. I think the fact that you're already thinking about it and, you know, what I really had taken away from those last few remarks that you made is that, you're truly thinking about this as holistically as possible. And I think that is really, really good advice for anyone who's listening that's building a team. It's not enough to just declare a desire to hire more diverse candidates, exactly for the reasons that you said. If the culture that those candidates join isn't geared up to support the different needs of people, the different backgrounds, and and there's no support system to accommodate that, and ensure that every person, regardless of their background or situation, has equal opportunity to excel in the environment and survive, you're not really going to succeed in building a diverse diverse team. Because even if you get them into the company, exactly like you said, that infrastructure is not there. And then they're just going to go, you know, they're going to go because 
more pressing material survival needs are going to come to the forefront and they will have to, you know, make sure that they can survive. And I think it's great that you've, you've identified, you know, a lot of people who are diversity experts in our field often talk a lot about that. You know, it's not just about, let's say, diversity. It's also about inclusivity and how do you strive for inclusion and how do you strive to create a culture where everybody feels like they have that equal opportunity, equal chance to do better. So I think it's incredible that you've you've shared that. And how do you relay that down? You know, you're there in the C-suite, you're the chief technology officer, you're participating across the company, various departments in really influential ways, whether it's hiring, in conversations with leadership. How do you make sure that that passion that you have for ensuring that Drift is the new face of corporate America, ensuring that Drift is representative of this colorful and broad society. How do you, as a leader, make sure that that sort of trickles down across your organization, especially as you said, you're scaling so fast now over the 300 employees mark? It's very difficult. I'm learning, right? I'm learning myself how to balance those efforts. And my technique in my mind is simply combine everything that I'm trying to do into one mission, one work, right? And so I, I can't be like doing, you know, Latinx, you know, POC work, diversity outside the company and then doing my work inside the company. I don't have, you know, you know, 48 hours in a day. And so I'm trying to combine everything uh, and really uh, make it one, one mission, one passion. I'm learning myself how to balance my time and what do I get involved with? So we, we are here doing many different things. I'm very, very focused on hiring, right, and supporting the people that are making the hiring decisions uh, at the highest levels to to be focused on, on bringing diverse talent. So I'm very supportive of that. I'm very supportive of people uh, that are in the office, uh, part of the company. If people do not know how to communicate with them or understand, this is a big challenges, right, to understand a different perspective, a different uh, process on, on, on performance. Everything when it comes to, to minority has to come through me now. It's just like, you know, to, to give it a different perspective. Uh, we also are involved with so many different programs now, little by little. We're trying to balance building a, a big company and also giving back to our community this early. People sometimes have a different expectation. They think that Drift is a, a 50,000 person company that has been around here for 30 years and we should be just a staple of the community. But we're a startup that we, we can disappear tomorrow, right? And so it's like we don't have like the uh, the public company status to say, yeah, absolutely, you know, do this. But we're balancing that out, right? We're we're involved here with a program called Build, teaching uh, minority URM underrepresented minorities um, about entrepreneurship in high school and expose them to get scholarships and uh, to go to college. I'm involved with the Smash program at Northeastern. That's with Mitch Kapoor and Frida. We're inspiring them, the kids, to take classes at at the best schools in the United States. So then they get access to that because otherwise they don't get accepted. Uh, we are working with ICW, Inner City Weightlifting, uh, with John Feynman here, uh, so we can help the, uh, the community give access to people that would never have met anyone in corporate America from the inner city, be able to learn a discipline like doing physical training. And we do a gym sessions here in the office and those trainers come. Oh, incredible. And and they could have been in a lot of trouble. They would have had a tough time growing up, right? They're part of the system, but they're here, we welcome them, right? And so we're doing that. I mean, I'm helping uh, the same scholarship that I received in Florida and USF 
you know, now I'm sponsoring kids to go to school over there, uh, you know, and I'm, you know, focusing on women in computer science, you know, for that, that's my target. And so it's like, there's so many things to do and there's so many things to share. We just, you know, but it, it's hard. Like there's a lot of stuff that we're doing and, and I'm asking people to get involved, to become mentors, to dedicate their time. A lot of people sometimes they just ask like, how can I help? How can I help? But people don't spending the time and really to, to follow through, but it has to be in your heart. You know, you just have yes. to want to do it so we can role model it. And then we hope people will follow, but it's a long process. That's incredible. I really appreciate uh, how candid you are about the scope of the challenge, because you're right, it is a long process. And I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. I spend a lot of time doing a lot of diversity and inclusion work. I've run workshops with the product and team and the Angelist team. This is something that I care a lot about. I spent three years researching, reading all about it. And what I find to be problematic is the view that a bit like you know debugging a program, you sort of find the problem, fix it, and you're done. You can't really do that when it comes to building a culture of belonging in a company or building a team that's representative. The challenge is too large uh, and lots of moving parts, a lot of complex uh, challenges to overcome, structural reasons. And you're absolutely right. You know, The best way to think about it is to accept that it's hard and accept that it will be a journey and that it will take a long time and then constantly you know, invest in programs, try different techniques, try different tactics and strategies, measure the results of those. Um, so yeah, really, really refreshing to, to hear your honesty on that. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and kind of go back a bit more to, you know, the product, because I know the makers are sitting there thinking, how did they get all of these incredible achievements? One in particular is revenue. So uh, one of the coolest things about Drift is that within your first two years of operating, you went from zero to eight figures. Now, to get to eight figures in 24 months is incredible. There are so many founders out there who are still trying to get their first 100 customers, still trying to get that first, you know, three-figure, four-figure MRR, monthly recurring revenue. I just wonder if there's any way that you can reflect back to those first two years of running the company, particularly in your role, you know, in the tech team, as a CTO, developing the product, and maybe share any learnings or lessons from that period of time that really helped you get from that place of pre-revenue to, you know, incredible revenue. Was it the fact that you were constantly iterating? Were you always shipping? What were the things that actually helped you get there? You know, when we did the performance with David, those were the early days of the lean startup stuff with Eric Reese. And, and I remember like, you know, Reed Hoffman talking about your baby is ugly or like, you know, <laughs> I remember people were saying, um, people wait too long to charge for something. No, they're afraid to charge. I, I just, I'm always in conversations with makers and founders and they're like, yeah, I'm working on my model. I want them to use it for free. They use it for free, use it for free. And, uh, I think we did it much better at Drift, right? We had a charge. If you're not charging, you don't know if this is valuable to anybody, you know. And so we were charging for stuff that was just barely like a chat system, right? And, and people are like, why would I use yours? And I was like, because it's going to be better. Because you're going to have access to me. Because I'm going to help you show you how to use it. And I'm going to help you how to get more revenue, right? And so I think that we we focus, uh, we 
SaaS business is incredible, right? Subscription as a, as a software as a service, subscription business is really the way of the future, right? Every business wants to do that. So I highly encourage people to go into that, you know, go to market business model and uh, because it adds up. And, and then so the, the math is really easy, right? So it's like, how do you get a million in revenue, right? That's, uh, that's what is 83,000 uh, MRR, right? How do you get 83,000? You know, if you charge 8,000, you need 10 customers, right? If you charge 800, you need 1,000 customers, right? And so, like, you just look at those metrics, right, and say, how do you do that? And you just work backwards from that. And so we launched our product, and, and we were charging $25 a month. And so we, we did some math, and we, we, we started one year. We launched it in, let's say, 2016 or something, and we were like, okay, we're gonna, we got to get to a million in revenue. And it's like, but we failed, right? We got to 300K that year. Right. And it was, but not failed because we launched in April and we only launched billing by October. So think about that. Right. It's like the more time you delay putting billing out, the, the longer it's going to take that you have something people want to pay for. Right. Like I went into Boston and I went and asked people for founders of mine, do you want to use my product? And like some people pay me 20 bucks for the year. Some people, I literally was like when I was a kid, I went out there and I sold mangoes from my tree carrying this basket with mangoes. I went in the same way out door to door, going to my friends that they were like, you know, starting companies or had companies that were smaller than what I was before Drift at HubSpot. And I had to go there asking for $20, right? And I got my first five, 10 customers like that. One pay me a hundred and it was like a hundred a month. And I was like blown away. And I had to earn their satisfaction and I had to help them succeed. And we started like that little by little, right? And so we knew that if you work hard enough that you can get that million. And so we ended up at 300K. Uh, and I, we had like 500 paying customers, but it was all over the place, right? And so you do that. We were short. But then the next year, we were in a, in a much better position. That's the year that we we blew that up by a lot. And, and it was now we, we, we brought in sales. A lot of founders think that they don't they can do this without sales and they're going to have a touchless sales model and people are just going to come, put their credit card and pay you and never churn. That doesn't happen, right? You need, you need customer success. You need this because your products, our products, all products will always fall short of what the customers need. It's never done. And so we, we, we brought in sales and we want to do like, you know, that myth that there's so many companies that make it without sales, it's just needs to be busted big time, right? People need to realize uh, people don't just give you money for no reason, right? You need to talk to them and help them understand what will your product do for their business. And it's really hard to do it all with online and a great website and great case studies and stuff. It takes time. So bring in salespeople early, do that, start selling, focus on them, and then you keep making more and more progress. And then you realize, and then, also, you got to increase your prices. You you can't build a business if you charge nothing. And so you got to figure out that the more value you bring, you have to be bold and say, we went from 25 and now we have, you know, some plans that are like, you know, start at, at, at 1500, I think, 2000 a month. Right. But that path is what's going to give you the most growth. Right. The, the more you're able to show value, the more you're able to ask for a price but you have to earn the right from your customers. And you do that by shipping fast, shipping continuously. 
I love that. Don't be afraid to charge. You're so right. Pricing comes up over and over and over again in the product hunt community. You know, we have discussions on producthunt.com slash makers. Makers all around the world are asking the same thing. And SaaS is a fast, fast growing market. Um, You're absolutely right. I mean, it's great to encourage people to do it, but I already see the trend. More and more people are cottoning on to that. You know, it is great sustainable income but not if you are still in premium mode because you're not quite sure how much to charge or, or what to do. Um, so, so I love that you said that. And of course, to focus on the product, that's incredible. I know that we're really, really short of time and you have to go and do the important things that CTOs and co-founders do. So I just wanted to ask you one last question. And this is actually inspired by a discussion that a SaaS founder posted last week. About five other SaaS founders chimed into the same discussion. And that was finding your first customers. So I just wonder, like, if you could just give one piece of advice to folks who are out there, they built an incredible solution for business owners. They're still in that bootstrap mode. They haven't raised, so their marketing budgets are limited. What advice can you give people, maybe remembering the early days of Drift or other products that you've built, finding your first customers for your SaaS product? I'm going to be controversial on this. Ooh. I, I, I think they're making a big mistake. You can't be building something if you don't know who you're building it for. It's so like the first customers are come naturally because you had to go interview them to see what problem they had. And so if you interview, we interview lots of people to figure out what we were building. Because if you don't, th- those were our first customers. I was talking to to Vinayak and I'm like, Vinayak, what do you think? He goes, I'm tired of having three systems to do messaging, one for sales, one for support, one for this, one for marketing, one for internal. It's like, I want to have one system. You know, okay, great. You want to talk to customers, you want to sell and you want to hone in. So like when you talk to customers about their pain, then you come back and you say, I built this for you. This will take care of the of, of, of the pain that you have. You have to solve a pain and therefore your customer is right in front of you. You can't build something in isolation and then go find customers. This is for the first customers you ask, right? Yeah, I think I think that's really, really solid advice. Don't build in isolation. A lot of indie makers speak to one single person and then spend six months building something. And you're so right. It's very similar advice that Cortland Allen of Indie Hackers gave on the same show. Speak to them throughout the process from the beginning to end. I think that's incredible. Elias, I mean, I could keep you here all day, but I know you have things to do. So for folks who are listening and they want to find out more about you and David and the incredible team at Drift, what you're working on, maybe job openings, where should they go? Drift.com. Perfect. Did you have to pay for that domain? That's really good. (laughs) Yes, we did have to pay for that domain. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I know you're on Twitter as well, and you talk a lot about the work that you do uh, supporting people of color within the industry. Um, So please share your Twitter alias as well so folks can follow you. It's Elias T, E-L-I-A-S-T, or Elias Torres on Instagram as well, wherever. Just come and talk to me. Amazing. Elias, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.